0: Amen. Hey, this morning we're going to spend the bulk of our time in the book of Acts in chapter 17. If you're going to want to open your Bibles, tap your way there. Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. I was thinking this morning about um, uh, two guys I met a number of years ago, probably uh, 12 and a half, 13 years ago, both from the same country, but, but very, very different from one another. And so I met one of them in the context of a, a Czech language class. Valerie and I were trying to learn Czech and stumbling through that. And really, we just wanted to be able to order hamburgers. Um, at the end of two years, we were, we were real close. But one of the guys in that class, he was from Iran. And when he described himself and talked about himself, he was, he was Persian never associated any anything to do with Islam. He was just decidedly Persian in his worldview and had actually been uh, significantly persecuted and uh, abused for that worldview. There's another guy in that same country, very different perspective, who for whatever reason, thought it would be great fun on a Tuesday night to attend a Bible study with us uh, about an hour and a half from our house by public transportation. And and every time I met with this guy, he would say, yeah, 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 which I think was one of the only truly English phrases he knew. <laughs> he would say, yeah, 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 We believe the same thing. And I would say, no, 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 Trying to teach him another phrase. So we don't believe the same thing. Now, the, the one guy really saw his his background in, the, in this Persian understanding and conception, very proud of where he had come from and, and, and proud of, of the lineage of his country, but wanted nothing to do with Islam. And this other guy, from his worldview, Islam, totally fit and was compatible with biblically, biblical Christianity. Same country, and probably in a lot of our minds this morning, we would just paint that whole country, perhaps that whole region, with a broad brush and say, I bet they would all respond to the gospel in the same way. But because of their different worldviews, because of their experience, because of their backgrounds, and because of all the things that they had uh, conceived about Christianity, my conversations with each of them were decidedly different. Now, the important thing to remember in having conversations with people about the gospel is that the gospel does not change. It's, it's unchanging, and so the, the truths we derive and come to, in scripture, these things are unchanging. But our presentation of the gospel must change. It has to be contextualized. It has to be adapted to make sense in the midst of these conversations. I had a conversation yesterday with a guy who came out to work in our house and, and, and help us uh, secure better internet. And, and in my conversations with him, I came to discover that he was raised... Uh, with a, a mother who is decidedly Catholic. And so I, b- I began to tailor my conversation and move it around to those things that I knew about Catholicism. And in the process of our conversation, he told me that he was raised with a father who was in the Air Force, and he was born internationally. So I began to relate my own personal experience to living internationally to his experience growing up so that I can create a greater opportunity to find commonality and to walk across this bridge of commonality to a conversation about the gospel. But to do all of these things requires that we are listening to the people we're talking to, and it requires that we are students and that we know something about the world and all the various things that are helpful in communicating the gospel. But still, at the end of all these things, you'll recognize that in some of your conversations and talking to people about the gospel, you'll present it and people will say, you sound crazy, I want nothing to do with this, and it'll come to an end, and in fact, If you're frequent in sharing the gospel, you might find that a lot of your conversations go this way. The Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18, he says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. A lot of the people you're going to communicate the gospel with, it sounds like the most insane mumbo-jumbo they've ever heard in their entire life. But he goes on, he says, But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God, and we recognize that the gospel has affected something radically different in us. We heard the message of Jesus, we submitted our lives to him, and we live now in the power of the gospel in submission to Jesus, communicating in every very circumstance that we happen to find ourselves in. Now, to what end should we go in the process of contextualization? To what end should I go in in, in learning about my other cultures and, and adapting what Paul gives us again from his greatest hits in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 9? Chapter 9 and, and picking up in verse 19, he says, listen, I'm free for, from all, but, but I choose to submit myself to all. So he, turks, he talks first about the Jews and submitting himself to the law. Then he talks about the Gentiles and being free. But look at what he says summarily in verses 22 and 23. He says, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. Paul says, there are people out here who are weak-minded, weak in their faith, and I want to become that so they identify with me, so that in identifying with me, I might lead them to redemption in Jesus Christ. He says, I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. The apostle Paul's heart beats for the lost, and in that he calls us to live a life like him, that we would consider the needs of others paramount. So much more important than our own. So that the minor inconvenience of studying to be ready, the minor inconvenience of awkward conversations, of walking up and saying, hey, uh, um, man I'd love to talk to you about something that made a profound difference in my life and the person's already heard the gospel presented this way and they say I want nothing to do with you please be quiet and you say okay I'll move on uh, friend I'd like to talk to you about about something that made a profound difference in my life and they're like look I heard this guy respond to you that way I felt like that was really rude so I'm willing to listen and then you became a foothold and an opportunity to present the gospel no matter how awkward you might have felt when this rude person over here rejected you Paul said, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessing. And we need to be a people who give ourselves to the communication of the gospel. Now, in Acts 17, we see a picture of one such occasion of how the apostle Paul did this. When Acts chapter 17 opens up, the apostle Paul is in Thessalonica and things are going great and, and people are hearing and responding to the gospel and then things go really poorly where the city leaders come and they're like, we don't like what this guy's doing. They drag them before the religious uh, leaders and the city leaders and, and the decision is made that Paul and his buddies better get out of there or they better kiss this sweet life goodbye. And so they pack up their bags and they head to Berea. Now, when they're in Berea, the text tells us that the Jews there were far more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica. And so they're studying the scriptures and they're determined to find if these things are so. Paul walks up and says, the suffering servant Isaiah, this person is Jesus. And they're like, huh and they're reading, and they're scanning, and they're examining, and some of them are responding to the gospel. And then in the midst of their response, the people back in Thessalonica hear about it, and they're like, dadgummit, he's still doing the same thing. And so they pack up their bags, their, their torches, their crowbars, and whatever else, and they march on Berea, and they say, you're not going to do this here. And, and Paul looks around at his friends, and his friends are like, that's it. you got to move to the next town. And so they grab Paul, and they take him, and they deposit him in Athens. Paul doesn't seem to be really, really pleased about this. Now, Timothy and Silas have stayed in Berea, and Paul says, listen, I'm going to stay here, but you're going to send those other guys to me. So now Paul has a couple of days to spend in Athens, and as he is walking around the city of Athens, a couple of things become patently clear to him. Look at verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, there's a guy named Pausinias who writes a, a few years after this would have been, and he says that Athens has an estimated 30,000 idols. 30,000 idols as you walk around the city in a population of probably around 10,000 at this time. So that's a great ratio, Right. And so Paul isn't engaging in hyperbole. He's not saying something that's not true. He's saying something that was patently obvious to everyone who had eyes to see. Everywhere he went, he saw an idol. There's an idol to this God, and an idol to that God, and an idol to this occupation, and an idol to that occupation. And what is his response? The text tells us that his spirit was provoked. Now, if you read through the Old Testament, frequently you'll see God's response to idolatry is his righteous indignation. And so what Paul is channeling, how he is responding, is exactly in line with the way we've seen God respond over and over and over again. When worship appropriately due him is is spent, is poured out on something else. And what Paul recognizes is this is an entire city and group of people who've given themselves to worshiping anything and everything but the one true creator God in heaven. And so Paul begins to find himself. He goes to the synagogue. He's in the marketplace, and Paul is just walking around. So within our context, Paul goes in uh, churches. He goes up and down the city streets, and he's visiting in local businesses. He's engaging in this hub. Imagine that the world is a giant farmer's market or Canton, uh, the kind of the, the weekends deal down there in Canton. And Paul's just kind of walking up, looking at puppies and all these various things. And he says, let me tell you a little bit about Jesus. Let me tell you a little bit about the resurrection. And so he's having conversations with people in this area about Jesus and about his resurrection to the point that people begin to get confused. They think that when Paul talks about the resurrection, he's talking about one God, and when he talks about Jesus, he's talking about another God. And so they say, what is this babbler on about? Look at that there in verse 18. He says, what does this babbler wish to say? Essentially, Paul is is known so well for engaging in this this kind of talk where he's talking about Jesus and his resurrection that people think Paul really doesn't know anything, that he's memorized just a few phrases and he's walking out and he's peppering everybody with these things. What do you know about this? What do you think about that? What do you think about this? And then Paul's like a broken record starting over again. They think Paul not very bright. They think him not very astute. But what we find is some of the folks come up to him. And of these, we have two primary groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, there's a lot that you could know, but very little you need to know about the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans primarily uh, are, are, are pursuing pleasure, but pleasure not in, in kind of a, of a sensual way. They're pursuing pleasures of the mind. They want tranquility and if you're a parent and have kids at home, you want that too, and so what we find in them is they think that tranquility is the highest goal, and that's what they're searching for, and they also think the gods are kind of off on their own. The gods have arrived at this place of tranquility, and that they're not necessarily all that involved in the day-to-day affairs of life. Now, the Stoics they have a decidedly different take on the gods. They think that God is essentially in everything and everywhere, this kind of panentheistic view. And they also seek to live their lives by a strict code of logic and reason. Imagine Spock without the pointy ears. And so we have these two groups, and they're out there, and they're engaging with Paul. And they look at what they say here in verse 19. They say, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to to know, therefore, what these things mean. And then Luke gives us a contextual clue to what life was like in Athens. He says, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except the telling or hearing of something new. Imagine that if you were to update this, there's the kind of people that just spend all day uh, scrolling on their, their Facebook feed and, and posting memes. This is all they're about, but, but slightly more highbrow and decidedly more low-tech. All they wanted to do is hear something new and tell something new. Have you heard the one that this babbler was saying the other day? No, I haven't. What's he on about? I don't know. Let's bring him up, and he's here. Let's learn something from him. Now, with, inside this, we see something distinctly different from the Bereans. You'll remember that when he went to the Bereans, it said they were noble. They were studying to see, were these things so? The people in Athens don't feel threatened by whatever it is this guy's saying. And they don't really want to hear the truth of what he's saying so they can evaluate whether or not it's something they want to bring into their lives. All they're really concerned with is the amassing of information. They want to know something else. They want to continue to grow in their knowledge of all these various things. So they grab Paul, and they bring him on top of Mars Hill, and he begins to speak to them. Now listen to what he says. Paul is standing in the middle of the Areopagus, and he says, Men of Athens, verse 22, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, this is an understatement. 30,000 idols amongst the, the city there. I, I perceive in every way you're very religious. He says, he goes on. He says, in fact, as I was walking along and engaging and observing your religiosity, I, I, I saw a plaque, and maybe some of you know it. And on this plaque, what it said was to an unknown God. It's from whence we get our word agnostic. It's almost as if they said that this kind of idol guild said, listen, we got, we got idols to this and idols to that and idols to that. We ain't got no idols saying no one, uh-uh, uh-uh, unknown God. And, and then the kind of overseer of their group's like, I didn't really understand what you're saying, but are you, are, are you trying to suggest we should cover all of our bases as if we forgot somebody in this pantheistic sea of all of these various gods? You, are you saying perhaps that we should have one that just says simply unknown God? And the guy's like, yeah, that's that what I'm trying to say. It's like, find them. We ha- we'll have that. But don't get so excited next time. And so Paul tells him, he said, listen, this thing, this plaque that says to the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this. I proclaim to you. Now, what's Paul just done there? Paul has walked across the bridge of their reality. Paul's taken something from their culture, and what he's done is he's walked across this in an effort to connect their worldview and how they see reality to the truth of the gospel. And then he begins to really preach. Paul moves in and he systematically addresses the Stoic and the Epicurean worldview by relating them to the creation narrative in Genesis 1. Paul says, the God, this unknown God you worship, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. And all of a sudden, the the guy whose idea it was to have this kind of catch-all, cover-our-back signs thing, I had it. Paul says, listen, you worship this God in ignorance, but he's actually the most powerful deity you could possibly imagine. He created everything you see. All that you behold is reality. This God created. But He doesn't live in temples by man. Now, they were big on temples and big on different edifices uh, given to uh, praise and honor their God. And this was a particular point of disagreement between the Stoics and the Epicureans. The Epicureans thought this was a waste of time. And so Paul, in some sense, is moving to endorse their worldview. He says he doesn't live in temples but made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. You remember the Epicureans thought that the gods are just kind of up there, tranquil, and just, just sitting by a river somewhere. And, and Paul is saying, listen, this God doesn't need to be served in this way. Why? Since he himself gives life to all mankind, life and breath and everything. Now when you begin to think of the Stoics and the Epicureans and all those there on Mars Hill, were they living and breathing? And you would say, yes, they're living and breathing. And because they're living and breathing, they find themselves on the basis of what Paul says in desperate need of the God that they formerly recognized only anonymous. Paul says, This thing which you did to this anonymous God, this unknown God, what you've been so close to, is that this unknown God created you and everything, and he sustains you in everything. He doesn't just sustain you and is and just kind of far removed and remote. This God is intimately, closely involved with your life. Verse, uh, he, he goes on in verse 26. He says, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. They would see themselves in some sense as autonomous, free. I'm distant and I'm remote from the affairs of deity. And Paul says, no, listen. Listen. This creator God, he didn't just create the system of things, but he took from all of humanity. And the Bible tells us in Genesis 1, 27, that male and female, he created them. That everyone who is alive is ultimately, uh, ultimately alive because God spoke into existence creation. And from creation, he created humanity. And from humanity, one man, one woman spun the entire populace all over the face of the earth. And this God who who spoke our very life into existence and who created mankind, he's also still in control. You may think living there in the city of Athens on this hill that all you need to engage in is the telling of hearing of something, but this one God, he has placed you here. He's given you an inquisitive mind. He's given you desires. And why has he done this and how has he done this? He says he has allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place for this purpose. Notice he doesn't say anything about their pleasure. God has designed times, seasons, and locations not for their pleasure, not for solely their enjoyment, but he has created these things for this purpose, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Have you ever walked into a room uh, that's just completely dark and you're not really sure where the light switch is and you're just kind of feeling along the walls, kind of at light switch height, and, and you're doing this number, and then this number. You're like, what? who lives here? And you're doing this number, and, and just kind of like, what, what common sense person wasn't on this job? Where is the light switch? This is essentially what Paul says they're doing. So they're groping along and feeling their way out, but they have no real guide in themselves to direct them, but God has placed them here and now so that they might perhaps find him so that they might perhaps find him and then he gives them the good news he says yet he's actually not far from any of us Paul wants them to find hope not in themselves and not in their abilities to overcome but he wants them to find hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ and so again he builds a bridge to their reality quoting perhaps two of their scholars he says for in him we move We live and move and have our being, even as one of your poets have said, for indeed we are his offspring. Paul says, listen, this isn't necessarily what they meant, but it is true nonetheless when you find that this unknown God is the creator God who created you, he created you for here and now, and he's placed you here and now so that you can find him, and then in finding him, you come to realize purpose and you come to find forgiveness. He says, "Being then God's offspring, we ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man." Paul is now moving from from a, from an. Understanding and communication of building out and helping them to find commonality. Now he moves through to systematically dismantle their worldview. He says, "All of these thirty thousand idols you have here, and 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 you have creators, and you have you have artists, and they're so incredibly amazing, but they pale in comparison in what they build to who this God is." He says, you're blown away and amazed when you see this idol created, but this idol is empty, this idol is void, this idol is powerless. We are his offspring, and he is alive. He's so much greater than these things. So what has Paul done? He's shown them that there's something that they did not know. And he creates in them a need to be informed, and so he describes their ignorance. He says, but this time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Paul says, listen, you need to turn from your ways. It's not simply enough to live your life in ignorance and think everything's just gonna work itself out in the end. You need to change your ways. You need to turn towards this God. He has fixed a day of judgment, and he's gonna judge the world in righteousness by a man, whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Do you remember their their chief complaint of Paul when he's in the marketplace? They don't really care anything for the resurrection. They don't really care anything for life after death, and this thought of coming back to life, being resurrected, is completely repugnant to them. But it's essential. You see, the truth of the gospel does not get to change no matter how offensive it is in whatever culture we happen to find ourselves in communicating. The resurrection is the only hope we have, and the apostle Paul gives us an extended message on that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, listen, you need to turn. You need to repent. God is going to judge the world in Righteousness. And the only hope that any of us have is found in a man who took upon the penalty and the punishment for the wrath duly headed towards you. He took it upon himself, he died, and then God raised him from the dead. Now what we see in 32 through 34 is the response to these groups. Some hear it and they hear him mention the resurrection and they laugh at him. Say this is the goofiest thing we've ever heard. This is a complete and utter waste of all of our time. Others hear it and they say, this is is bizarre. At times I felt like you were with me. At times I felt like you were moving against me. And at times I felt like you were a madman. But I got to hear more. And then there's a small group of people who hear the gospel. And it says they joined him and believed. And among them, one of the leaders up there in the Areopagus. And when we come to passages like this, these narrative sections, these stories, we recognize that there are a number of things that are helpful for us to keep in mind as we move to application. When you want to share the gospel with someone, when you want to communicate the gospel to someone, one of the things that is important and necessary even for us to know, man, I got to know what my idols are, I got to know what their idols are. But Paul, as he walked down the city streets in Athens, he was clearly, okay, well, I've, got, I've got this one over here, I've got this one over here, I've got names on all of them. Wouldn't it be so much more helpful in some sense, you're driving down the street, you pull onto the curb, you walk up a driveway, you walk up to the door, and there beside the door of their house is a little soccer ball emblazoned with a baseball and a football and a basketball and a volleyball and a, one of those little ribbon things that people dance with sometimes, and you think. They're idle of sports. I got this one. It's a quick Google search to verify team numbers and affiliations for the area. And you knock on the door they're like, how are the Cowboys doing? And they slam the door in your face because you missed it. These people aren't insane. They're clearly not Cowboys fans. You leave that house. You drive to the next one. You walk up, and there's a little bowl outside. And it's not real money because that wouldn't stay very long. But it's, it, it looks a lot like money, you think these people their idol is materialistic thing their idol is money you drive to the next one and there's this little picture of this, this flexing bicep and you're like all right they're either really into them or really into power and this is meant to be a metaphor and this this scrawny little guy opens the door and you're like power power's the metaphor <laughs> it'd be so much easier we have to be able to see the idols of our culture if we're going to call them out, because the people of our culture and the people of our churches mindlessly follow idols. And there's so much more real and so much more insidious than a plaque found on a city street. We need to be able to walk in and engage and talk to them about why Physical health and physical wellness pales in comparison to that which lasts eternally, our souls. We need to talk to them about why sports are helpful and why these things are good, but why the gospel is paramount and why making a decision for Jesus is now and not later. Friends, if we're going to be fruitful in the 21st century sharing the gospel, we have to be students of cultures beyond our own. It's going to take some work for us if we're going to have conversations with people who are increasingly marginalized, they increasingly are moving away from the gospel, people of no religious affiliation, people of, of atheistic or agnostic religious affiliation and thoughts about God, people who are culturally Christian are incredibly difficult to share the gospel with because they believe by and large that they're fine. And so what we do in those gospel encounters is to lead them to the reality that they are not in fact fine, that it doesn't matter who their grandmother is, it doesn't matter where they were born or how often they went to church or how many times they got dunked, if they are not living in accordance with Jesus as Lord and Savior of their life, they are going to receive his condemnation. It's the most dangerous thing in our community. So many people think being moral, attending church occasionally, having some loose affiliation with Jesus, saying the big guy and I got things worked out, the big guy and you got nothing worked out if you haven't worked it out with Jesus. we have to know how to engage people in all these various settings, in all of these various circumstances, different faiths, cultural Christians. One of the things plainly that's gonna be incredibly difficult for us for the next little while anyway is how to navigate the damage done to Christianity through many of us engaging in overt political statements. Now, some of us, we've just gone incredibly too far in engaging in politics. Now, others of us, our hearts were always with Jesus. We've not sold our soul to elect someone, but that's the accusation. That's the prevailing thought for many people when they consider what it means to be an evangelical. So whether you are guilty of that or not, you still got an answer for it. I want to remind you of something. Paul said, I became all things to all men that I might win some. So it's not enough for us. If you walk up to share the gospel with somebody, And they just unleash on you this tirade of, I bet you're a Trump supporter and a white nationalist and a racist and you married your cousin, sister, mother. And you're like, it's my third cousin. But how did you know that? It's not enough for us in that setting to say, that's not true of me. You shut your mouth and listen to the gospel. We want to hear people. I so said, where, where have you heard this? What, what, do you, what do you think it means for somebody to be an evangelical? What it means to be a Trump supporter? You say, well, n- not really, not necessarily. Me, can I tell you about the, kind of the root of this word and where it comes from and this idea of somebody reporting good news? And occasionally, because so much damage has been done, we're not going to have that opportunity. But you better have an answer for it. And as a Christian, we cannot find our identity in a nation, in a party, in a platform. Terrific damage, whether you did it or you support those who did it, terrific damage has been done to the cause of Christ by the conflation of Christianity, by the bringing together Of Christianity and politics in this time, in the 21st century. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be engaged in politics, we absolutely should. It doesn't mean we shouldn't vote, it is the voice we have. It doesn't mean we can't protest, it doesn't mean we can't give speeches. But we've got to be clear on where we stand. And because Culturally, we're getting painted with such a broad brush. We have to be ready to give a response to those who look like us or those that we are associated with because that's what's being told to people broadly. You may not be guilty of the thing, but if you go to church and you claim to be a Christian, you're going to be accused of the thing. And if we're going to be engaged in America for the next little while we need to be careful students to figure out how to communicate the gospel to those around us now listen there are those of us that that we are just flat guilty of this you felt like that if Trump wasn't elected the world would end It wasn't elected Biden takes office this, this week and maybe Jesus comes back. We know neither the time nor the hour. But we've been given a clear instruction towards faithfulness. And faithfulness does not depend upon who our president is. If they get rid of all of our religious liberty, our, our nonprofit status, and, and begin to throw Christians in jail, does that impact our call to faithfulness? no does that make it more difficult yes but i tell you one of those things that's going to go away quicker than anything is cultural christianity you will know who's a follower of jesus because being a follower of jesus will no longer be okay it'll be something that costs us everything let me hit two more things and then i'll be done God has us here, and he has us now. When Paul tells them that in verse 26 that God has allotted locations and allotted periods or seasons of time, that includes right here, right now. God doesn't have you here for 2022. Have you seen the meme that's the guy, he's like, let me raise this to 2022. God doesn't have you here for 2022. He doesn't have you here for the next season of life. God has you here, and he has you now. Be useful here and now. We don't punt. We don't wait. We plow ahead with the gospel here and now. In chapter 17 and verse 6, the accusation, the accusation was launched against Paul, was launched against those there before the city leaders. It says, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Christianity stands within it and the power of the gospel, the redemptive work of Jesus under the power of the Holy Spirit to actually, literally turn the world upside down. What are we waiting for? What are we holding back and waiting for? We've been entrusted the gospel and told to go. We've been given the gospel and told to communicate it. We've been given the gospel and said to live it out vibrantly if we do this we submit ourselves to the gospel and communicate it everywhere we go we will see the world turned upside down I mean, let's see this accusation ring true let's see the gospel flood our city streets and let's see what it looks like when a people turn their heart in gentle submission to the lord and say, send me, take me, I'm yours. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the encouragement you give us in the Apostle Paul. God, the contextualization, the way he moved and identified the gospel with their lives God, I pray these things, same things would be true of us, that we would be looking for avenues, areas, and opportunities to engage men and women with the, with the gospel, that we would be students who know their worldviews, their world, so that we could respond winsomely, powerfully. God, I pray for the equipping power of your Holy Spirit to go forth as we share the gospel, both in this place and beyond. And God, we pray for any who have yet to respond to the gospel. That when they hear that call, go out to those there in Athens, the command for all people everywhere to repent. God, that today they would find themselves moving in repentance. God, I pray that you would guide us, that you would direct us, and that we would submit ourselves to you in all things. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.